One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available, ready to eat, with cold-smoked, ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're chatting with Chef Carla Hall about the real soul food, how fried foods became more popular with the Great Migration North, how real soul food is fresher and healthier, and why she says, quote, if you're not in a good mood, the only thing you should make is a reservation. Reservation. 
If you don't feel like making it and you're doing a grilled cheese, the bread will be askew, the bread is burned before the cheese melts, and so that just says you don't care. Also coming up, we present an unusual version of guacamole, and Adam Gopnik bemoans New York City's steady drumbeat of restaurant closings. But now it's my interview with the authors of Bong Appetit. That's Rupa Bhattacharya and Faraday Sadikin. Bong Appetit started as a video series by Munchies. Bhattacharya is the editor-in-chief of Munchies, and Sadikin is the culinary director. Rupa and Faraday, welcome to uh, Milk Street. Thank you. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Well, especially if you've been eating some of the food from your book, you probably are happy, right? I mean, so, <laughs> so okay, here's my question. Like, I'm a child of the 60s. I was there. My obvious question is, why not just smoke a joint before dinner? What's the benefit of actually cooking with weed or cannabis other than just doing it for fun? Well, so that's actually where this book departs from a lot of the historical cannabis cooking that has existed, especially in the 60s, where the goal of cannabis cooking was to just get as much weed as possible into the food so you'd get as high as possible as quickly as possible, which is miserable. But here, and especially with the show and with the book as well, the point is really much more about flavor. And um, I'll let Faraday, our culinary director, speak a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I think that, you know, cook everything from this book without weed, if you like. Um, This book is more so about cannabis as an ingredient. So it's kind of like nose to tail cooking. You know, we're using the leaves, which are non-psychoactive. We're using the flour. We're kind of trying to extract every single bit we can from the plant and use it just as you would any other ingredient. I I never thought I'd heard someone refer to cooking with weed as nose to tail. But I I mean, I I, I get it when you have a pig, man. (laughs) But, uh, you know, you got a plant here. So, okay. Are there certain foods that really lend themselves to be infused? I think basically you're looking at um, your flavor profile is like vegetal and grassy, essentially. So the places where weed ends up doing the best are the places where you would expect those herbs. So there's a ribeye in there that I really like. Um, and that has a chimichurri, and the chimichurri is phenomenal. And I find that that sort of like, it has this like sort of almost this slight like Triscaria vibes where it has that, that grassiness comes out really nicely and especially if you use a grass-fed ribeye you get that extra layer of sort of gaminess and tanginess but I would essentially think about places where you would otherwise want vegetal undernotes. So, so you talk a lot about the different parts of the plant the flower, the trim, the leaves could you just explain the different parts of the plant and, and what they're used for and how they're different? Absolutely. So basically, the thing that you're most used to looking at when you, I mean, the thing you chopped up and smoked in the 60s, that's flower. That's the flower of the plant, also known as bud. And that's the thing that we most commonly call for. Around the base of the plant, you'll see like, um, you'll see both the pot leaves, like the classic like weed leaf that you see always like in in logos, etc. That is not psychoactive. That's something that we use generally for flavor. We make a beautiful pesto. There's a beautiful pesto. There's a kimchi in there that we do with it. There's a a focaccia. What else do we have? We do like kale chips but with the with there's a tempura, the leaves. yes there's a tempura uh, leaf they essentially taste like a like a vegetal chard a vegetal slightly um mm. more fibrous chard and so those leaves have no psychoactive properties they contain no thc whatsoever so you could just eat those like salad so so the leaves are fibrous and don't get you high um yes that, <laughs> but neither does kale though so you know like it's the new kale salad exactly the amount of times we heard that weed is a new kale is was remarkable in the context of writing this book so let's get back to the fundamental concept. Is there anything about getting slightly high while eating this food that enhances, you think, the food in some way or the experience? Or is that just a side effect you're really going for flavor? 
I, I would say I think we're more so going for flavor. Like I've, I've been to a few weed infused dinners where there's many courses, you know, five to, you know, even 10 courses and everything is infused. But usually when you do one of those dinners, like you want the whole meal to maybe be dosed at like 10 milligrams and you're going to feel a lot. So that means like every course is so low dose, you know, like where you're having this canopy and that's like you know, one to two milligrams or something. And then you maybe you want to bounce it out with a little bit of a CBD. If you're getting too high, you have, you know, your CBD course that will kind of mellow you out a little bit more and counteract that. Well, can I ask a question? Do you think if this had been legal from the beginning of time here in America, this would have the kind of popularity it's about to have? Or you think it's just because we're at this pivotal moment where it's going from an illegal drug to being legal in some places, and therefore there's a sort of an onslaught of interest in it. Absolutely. But also I think the legality makes it so much easier. I think that if you don't live in a legal state, you're never going to bother wasting your weed to infuse olive oil. So let's talk about weed versus cocktails. Yes. Um, cocktails for me have so many different flavors, bitters, all sorts of different liqueurs, etc. The process of making the cocktail, all the paraphernalia... Do you compare weed to mm-hmm. cocktails in some way? Or are they for totally different types of people? Or they have nothing in common whatsoever? That would be another option. I think they have they have plenty in common. I think there's, a, there's plenty of ritual. It's actually really interesting. I was thinking about this recently, about how the vape pen has removed a lot of the lovely sort of analog pleasures of rolling a joint. And in a lot of ways, it's like the same as Spotify streaming music versus a record player. So there is, I completely hear you on the ritual of like making a martini and doing these things. And I think there is room for sort of the ritual of of consuming weed the way that it's done in the public space is 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 curious right because there isn't really like a, a the way that you come up to a bar at the end of a day and you sit down at the bar and somebody makes you a drink and hands it to you right. that very communal interaction that that doesn't exist right because anywhere that weed is legal it's not really publicly legal and so i think that ritual is slightly absent and i can completely see why you're seeing that there's a significant difference there but i don't think that they're necessarily that different from each other So we're just starting now at the very beginning of this process of weed being legal 10 years from now or 15 years from now. You think it will sort of go into the cocktail realm and and be a more social, warmer experience? I think so. I think it must. I mean, you think about also how you see it in Amsterdam, right, where it's like that, but it's marginalized, right? So you've got your coffee shops, but they're this very marginalized, very stoner space where it's very like – overwhelmingly cheesy with bad posters of psychedelic art, etc. There is not a space that I would personally want to go consume weed that I would like to go have a cocktail. Like when you drink, I think that people get a little bit more, for the most part, sociable and that sometimes that opens people up. And I think that weed has the opposite effect on some people. So I don't know, maybe maybe weed is is more of like a, not so much of like a going to the bar like you would get a cocktail type thing for everyone. I also think that it having been illegal just changes the calculus of how people interact with it in the first place. And I really wonder how it evolves over 10, 15, 20 years of legality and whether the culture sort of develops around it. Rupa and Faraday, thank you so much. Uh, Something old is new again and in a new way. And I I would bet someone's going to figure out the weed bar uh, and make it social and colorful. And uh, I mean, someone's going to do it. Uh, it's gonna be a that's gonna be a fun, warm, loving environment. People are gonna have like really I can picture it now with like really good like snacks and big couches and people just like sinking into it. There's gonna be you know the the TV, the good movies and stuff. It's gonna be pretty rad. Yeah, it won't be Starbucks, it'll be weed bucks. Yeah. Fantastic. Here for that. Thanks guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
That was Rupa Bhattacharya and Faraday Sadigan, authors of Bong Appetit, Mastering the Art of Cooking with Weed. Mill Street Radio is available anytime, anywhere as a podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, my co-host Sarah Mult and I are ready to answer your culinary questions. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? I'm good, Chris. Uh, but, you know, before we start taking people's questions, I have a question for you. Personal, I hope. Well, I don't know if it's personal or not. How do you feel about microwaves? Do you use them? I remember when they first came out and uh, the book Microwave Gourmet came out. You remember that? Barbara Kafka Barbara Kafka. Wrote, she did deep frying in the and microwave. And I gave her a horrible review. <gasps> Gasp. Which I felt bad about, actually, mm-hmm. afterwards. I had to buy her a very expensive lunch. Uh, but her concept was you could actually cook in a microwave. My feeling is I have one in the basement. I reheat rice. I heat up maple syrup. Mm. And that's it. Not a lot. I never cook in a microwave. I hate microwaves. Okay, then. How do you really feel? I got it. don't like them. Okay, time for calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Sarah Duke. Hi, Sarah Duke. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Where are you calling from? From Stockton, California. How can we help you today? So I have a question about eggs. I have seen on several demonstrations that some of the chefs break up their eggs before they add them to other ingredients, and other chefs add them whole and then break them up. Is there a reason for this, or is it just personal preference? Depends on the recipe, I'd say. What kind of recipe are you thinking of? Not a specific recipe. I've seen it on lots of shows. But in baking, I know with egg whites that there's, you know, specific science behind how you incorporate egg whites. But is there any science in how you incorporate whole eggs? I don't think it's science. I think it's – I have a very strong opinion about this, as you might imagine. Really? Yes, I do. You don't have too many of those. Um, (laughs) How odd. (laughs) Yeah, I would always – whisk eggs for a few seconds before adding them to any kind of batter. And the reason is most batters you don't want to overbeat. Cake batters, anything else, pancake batters. So I would always whisk the eggs just for a few seconds just to get them sort of uniform and then pour them in. If the recipe says add four eggs Mm -hmm. at one time, I would whisk them together quickly. Me too. If you're making a sort of cake, for example, and often you're creaming butter, You'd add one egg at a time, beat for 10 or 15 seconds. That's fine. But if you're adding a bunch of eggs at once, I would whisk them quickly. Right? Yeah. I agree with that one. Ah, Look at that. Yeah. I think we can go home now. I think so. (laughs) So, Sarah, 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 wait, wait. Now you've listened to us. What do you do? Well, I I like to break up the yolks before I add them, just so I'm sure that I've broken all of them and so that they're uniform. I mean, it probably doesn't make a huge difference. It's just, I, I think it's better if you're adding multiple eggs at once to quickly whisk. You just want to avoid the overmixing is yes. really where the key comes in. Yeah, many batters you don't want to overmix. So don't if, o- yeah, because then you'll develop the gluten and yeah. you'll end up with a tough product. As soon as flour comes into contact with a liquid, you start to develop gluten. That's why they have you add the eggs at the end in a cookie recipe, for example. It's because everything is just hunky-dory until you add that liquid, and then the dough can start getting tough. Did you just say hunky-dory? I did. <laughs> anyway, Sarah, thank you so much. Uh, it probably doesn't make a big difference, but I think a little mixing first is good. Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye. 
Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Jeff. Oh, hi, Jeff. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Nice. How can we help you today? So my question is, I want a basic recipe for handmade, homemade pasta. I've got a couple of rollers for my mixer, and and every time I make it, I kind of go to the Internet and look something up, and 50% of the time, it just doesn't work. Let me ask a question. Are you rolling it out by hand, or you have a hand crank like Atlas machine? On the KitchenAid. I've got a roller, a couple of rollers. So you can adjust the distance between the rollers as you roll. Yes. Yes, sir. Well, my experience is that I like a little olive oil in mine. That's how I do it. Okay. But I find that if you have an electric machine or one a hand crank machine, that if you just keep putting it through the machine enough, it will eventually get to the right texture. So when you start with the whitest setting at the beginning, I put it through yeah. more than once or twice. I put it through a bunch of times till I get sort of the right texture, and then I put it through the thinner widths. I find the actual recipe doesn't matter as much as putting it through that roller a bunch of times. And I think the basic ratio is one cup of unbleached all-purpose flour to two eggs. Now, as Chris and I would both say, one cup of flour, you're going to measure it different than I'm going to measure it, than Chris is going to measure it. You weighing your flour, or are you just measuring it by volume? I'm measuring it, but I can weigh it. Well, you could do that. What I wanted to say, I was lucky last year I was in Italy, in Sorrento, mm. and we made lemon pasta by hand with this old granny. She puts a mound of flour on the counter, and you could start with a one cup of flour will yield about three quarters of a pound of homemade dough, which is about enough for three people as an entree. So you start with a cup for every two eggs. So you put the flour on the counter and make a huge well. And then you put the eggs in there and beat them up until they're broken up. And then you gradually start moving the flour into the egg mixture until you get a paste. And then you keep bringing the flour from the sides of the mountain into the molten center of the mountain until you sort of get a texture that's coming together. And then you stir it a bit until it feels not so sticky, meaning sometimes you don't end up adding all the flour. So that's why it's more about knowing how it should feel than about the actual amounts, but a good place to start. And then after you get a texture that's not too sticky, then you knead the dough quite a bit. And then I 100% agree with Chris at that point. You do what he says and put it through the roller, starting with the largest hole. I think one of the problems is like making pie dough is when you're kneading it, you know, you end up adding too much flour because it starts to get sticky. The more you knead it, it gets a little stickier. So you have to be very careful not to add too much flour. Flour. You want to just be able to touch it and it should feel soft but um, not sticky. Jeff, good luck. uh, Thank you very much. Take care. All right, Jeff. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a call, 855-426-9843, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Nicole. Hi, Nicole. Where are you calling from? Seattle, Washington. Wonderful. How can we help you today? A while ago, I bought a jar of hing or asafoetida. Um, it was only like two bucks, and I was trying to make some Indian food, and I've had trouble making Indian food more authentic. Um, but you only use a tiny little bit, so now I have this jar of really pungent spice that I'm not quite sure how to use up. Did you get the lump version of it or the powdered version of it? 
powder version. That's part of the problem. Maybe we should just pause for a second and say what it is. Um, well, okay. I just interviewed Nick Sharma, who wrote a book called Season, which is a fabulous book, and he grew up in Bombay and then moved to Cincinnati, of all places. His grandmother, when his grandfather died and she was widowed, in that culture, she's not allowed to eat onions and garlic. Right. Because For religious reasons. It's thought that since they're heating substances, they lead to impure thoughts. So guess what she uses to replace it? What? Asafoetida. Right. That's a replacement for garlic or onions in Indian cooking. Uh, and so uh, if you think of it that way, it's pretty interesting. You could sort of think of it, it's weird, it's got this weird smell, although it truly mellows as soon as you cook it, and you must cook it in oil. Mm-hmm. But that James Beard even said it's sort of like their version of truffles, not that it's a fungi uh, or anything, but it's uh-huh. it's pungent. And so what I would yeah, say is yeah. the trouble is you have the powdered version, which is far stronger, just because it's already uh-huh. been ground up, yeah. is Put it in another jar and another jar and another jar just to keep the aroma down. But you won't have any problem cooking with it because it does mellow when you cook it. And I agree with Chris. I would use it in dishes where you would have put onion and garlic. Okay. And it will mellow just as an onion would. It has some, you know, sulfurous compounds in it, mm-hmm. but just as onion does. But as soon as you start cooking an onion, it gets really very sweet. Let's back up. The reason to use it is it's like a umami boost. It just amplifies flavor. Yeah, yeah. Don't use too much of it and make sure it's cooked in oil. Yeah, like yeah. a pea shape is what you need yeah. for a How recipe. How much of it do you use if you were replacing onions or garlic, or can you use it as an umami addition to it? No, I, I wouldn't use it to replace. I just use it as an amplification. As an addition. Right. I'd say a pea shape, again. Yeah. Start with something small. Yeah, it's powerful. But it's a great ingredient. You know, have fun with it. All right, all right. <laughs> Go crazy with us and Fadina. All right. Thank you so okay. much. Okay. Thanks for calling. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Most Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, we're talking soul food with Chef Carla Hall. That's coming up right after this break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, 
which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Day Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Carla Hall rose to national fame in 2008 as a contestant on Bravo's Top Chef, since then, she has been a co-host on ABC's The Chew, and she's written three cookbooks. Her latest is called Carla Hall Soul Food, Every Day and Celebration. Carla, welcome to uh, Milk Street. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Uh, before we get into all the good stuff, you grew up in Nashville, you went to Howard University, and then you were in accounting, and then you became a model and traveled to Paris, Milan, and London. Um, I just thought that was an interesting footnote in your CV. Um, tell me about that. I wanted to be in theater, and I wasn't accepted into my first and only choice for conservatories, which was Boston University. So I decided to go to Howard University, and I liked my accounting teacher in high school. So I said, if I'm not going to do theater, I will do accounting. <laughs> <laughs> As one does with the about face. 
And um, while I was at Howard, I did fashion shows. They were a big deal at Howard for the homecoming event and the spring fashion show. And so when I moved to Tampa, Florida, after I got a job with Price Waterhouse, I was approached by someone who said, do you model? I said, well, I, you know, I did a little bit in college. And she asked me if I was interested. And because I didn't know anybody in Tampa, Florida, I said yes. And that kind of became a thing that I did on the side. And it was also the thing that saved me because I hated my job in accounting. And I met these <laughs> girls who were moving to Paris to participate in the Pret-a-Porter, the fashion season, the ready-to-wear right. fashion season. And I said, you know what? I think I'm going to do that, too. And I, I had one telephone number and 10 words of French in my back pocket, my way, way back pocket. And I just sort of headed to Paris. And you found work? I did. Eventually, I found work, but I also found food. You said that celebration soul food is not daily soul food. And you said that yeah. what travels well is fried chicken and mac and cheese, but that's not really how you would define soul food. So so what does everyday soul food mean? I would I would say that it's those dishes that we would have outside of our celebration dishes. It, it, it would be the dishes that I grew up eating Every day, those vegetable dishes, some grains, sorghum and millet, which I was just introduced to a few years ago. But I would consider that part of our soul food because it's part of the African diaspora. And then when I think about my grandmother's garden and, you know, she was growing her own college and she was growing her green beans and and all of these vegetables, we we didn't have pork and everything. She didn't fry every single vegetable. So it was a lighter version of, I think, what people consider soul food. And so I consider those everyday dishes, just like every other cuisine has their celebration dishes and their everyday dishes. Yeah. I grew up eating okra uh, and hated it because it was boiled. Uh, Yes. You you grill it, you sear it. I like what you do with it. Everything but boiling it. Because <laughs> I tell people I don't like okra. And so as a person who cooks, I ask myself, why don't I like okra? I didn't like it because of its texture. So I know that as a cook, I can change the texture by grilling it or searing it or roasting it. And so part of those recipes were me going through this exercise of how can I have this vegetable, which I know is part of my heritage, and make it shine for myself. You're quoted famously as saying, if you're not in a good mood, the only thing you should make is a reservation. Mm -hmm. I know lots of cultures, cooking is about more than the food. It's about your attitude and your point of view and how you feel about it. You obviously agree that's true, right? Yes. Yes, I do. And I think that when you aren't in a good mood and you are tasked with cooking food for people, they will not enjoy it. And I oftentimes give the example of my grandmother and or anyone's grandmother, if they're making you soup and a sandwich or, you know, tomato soup and a grilled cheese. And you think, wow, it's so good. It's so delicious. And it's per- that, that grilled cheese is perfectly toasted and the cheese is melted and the edges of the bread are lined up. 
that's the perfect version. But if you don't feel like making it and you're doing a grilled cheese, the bread will be askew. The bread is burned before the cheese melts. It's, you know, and so that just says you don't care. You are um, you're against modern watermelon and you made a pretty good case. Uh, It was bread. All the flavor and sweetness has been bred out of it. Yeah. So what, what's what's happened there? I guess they want smaller seeds, so they ended up with less sugar? Or? Right. I mean, smaller seeds and, you know, for the convenience. I think we can, we can look at a lot of things today and flavor has sort of fallen by the wayside for the convenience of the consumer. Well, convenience is the death of culture if there you, you really go. wanted to get extreme. Right, right. The other day I was buying a, a bunch of eggs for a dinner that I was making, and um, this young lady who was at the checkout counter at the grocery store, she was like, oh, what are all those eggs for? And I said, oh, I'm making um, a banana pudding. She was like, they're eggs and banana pudding? <laughs> uh, I was like, they're eggs <laughs> yeah. in the custard. And, you know, and so I'm looking at her, and I'm like, this is why we need to cook more. And not saying that you need to make everything, but you need to understand where your food comes from. Um, how did mac and cheese become soul food? I never understood that. James Hemmings, we, we did a story about this when, when I was on The Chew, and I was working with Tanya Hopkins, um, who was the culinary historian who worked with me on my book. And James Hemmings was Thomas Jefferson's chef. And Thomas Jefferson was known to be a foodie. And Thomas Jefferson took James Hemmings to Paris, where, he, where James was trained, and James Hemings ended up working, I mean, he was a slave, working at Monticello. And Jefferson loved pasta. So James made this dish that he had in France. He made this pasta dish, and then he did a very simple bechamel. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at the components of mac and cheese, French and then Italian, but... Um, it was a very simple dish of this homemade pasta with just milk, and then you have grated cheese. So it's not, it didn't have the cheese sauce that we know today, but that was the genesis of it. And when you think about mm. macaroni and cheese, nothing about it screams African diaspora, from the dairy to the pasta. But because we were cooks, we were cooking for other people, their food became our right. food. And it's also true, a lot of Southern cooks, there was a lot of French influence. Yes, uh, there were French classics. And, and people think about, they never think about slaves being trained or soul food coming out of uh, a cuisine with technique when a lot of the skills were from people who were trained. Right. So, and I think that's where the crossover happens. Uh, pickling. Um, yeah. I love pickling and you have red onion pickles in this book and I just love the notion of doing that because it's so quick. Just talk about that because that's just, it's a technique that's so simple but it's sort of been forgotten by many people. I am a pickle addict. If you look (laughs) at my fridge right now, Chris, you will see condiments and pickles and I have at least five quarts of chow chow. So I I that's, love that's serious. <laughs> <laughs> so you know with the with the the red onions, the pickled red onions, the color of the red onions are so beautiful. Just simply doing a brine of vinegar and water and and some some aromatics and salt, 
And so a little bit, a little bit of sugar, and you just pour it over them, and then you put it in the refrigerator, and then a couple of days later, you have these beautiful pickles. And the longer they sit, the better they get, I think. They they mellow out, and um, if you can have them spicy or not. So I'm a fan. I'm I'm just a big fan of pickles. So if you were going to cook a soul food dinner, could you Mm -hmm. just give us an example of what that would be like? So we're doing every day or we're celebrating? Uh, Let's do every day. Okay. Um, One of the first things that I would make, which I I love, I love beans. I would do the black-eyed pea salad with hot sauce vinaigrette. And with that, I would serve a piece of fish. Um, If I was celebrating or if it was a Saturday, I would probably fry that fish, catfish with hot sauce and mustard. If it's um, a weekday, I would probably broil that fish. Do you think frying was more popular at at a certain time because it was – just an easy, quick way of cooking food? Was was it about, I hate to use the word, convenient? Uh, is, is that why frying was used more, let's say, 100 years ago than it is today? I think, I think frying became a thing that when people were migrant and they were moving, let's say, for the great migration from the south to the north and, and, and people didn't have gardens, I think frying became mm. a thing. You know, when people were living off the land, they didn't need to fry. They just go out and grab something out of the garden and come in and make it. But when you are transient and vegetables weren't as fresh or, you know, you just bread them and fry them and keep on keep on getting up. So where, where do we go from here in terms of soul food? Is this one of those things that 20 years from now we'll look back and it will have changed a lot since today? Uh, or is it? Is there a definition of it that'll stick in some way? What I'm hoping is that the definition for the masses, especially African Americans, broadens. I'm hoping that people, first of all, learn that our food is more than the 20% that we focus on, that has become a caricature of itself, right. and we broaden it. I'm hoping that people realize that Eating our food and making our food is a way to preserve our culture. If I look at my family, my nephews and niece, without me, they would not be making this food. And so one of my motivators was them. And my mother would be the matriarch, but I have called myself the culinary matriarch because without cooking this food, they wouldn't know. They wouldn't know it. Carla. It has been an enormous privilege having you here at Milk Street. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. That was Chef Carla Hall. Her latest book is Carla Hall Soul Food Every Day in Celebration. You know, soul food is yet another culinary moniker which probably does more harm than good. It deserves to go the way of Indian food, Chinese food, or Mexican food, and Italian food. It's a name that disguises the underlying complexity and diversity of cooking, and that means different things to different people in different places. Is, for example, American food the food of New England or Alabama or New Orleans? Or is it the food of German, Peruvian, or Vietnamese immigrants? Well, it's kind of hard to say. And that's the point. Soul food isn't the food of just a place. It's the food of the soul.
Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen of Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, mashed avocados with sesame and chili. Catherine, how are you? I'm good, Chris. Uh, today is guacamole day here at Milk Street. Uh, we've been to Mexico to work with Diane Kennedy about a sort of classic central Mexican version, which is very simple. In Colombia, they take hard-boiled eggs and mash them in. But in Gaza, according to Yasmin Khan, she's the author of Zaytun, they do something quite different. And what do they do there? Well, Chris, this version is kind of crunchy, spicy, creamy, and citrusy all at once. Now, traditionally, it's made with sumac, and that is actually a dried berry that adds a nice kind of citrusy, bright note. But we know that sumac can be a little bit difficult for people to find. So we found that if you combine sweet paprika, cumin, coriander, and a little extra lemon juice, you get a similar kind of kick. So it has some other ingredients that are more typical, right? Garlic, chili, et cetera. But there's yogurt in this, right? That's right, Chris. There's some whole milk yogurt, which adds a little tang and some nice richness to it, and olive oil and garlic. And then we have to serve sesame seeds on top, too, to give a little bit of of crunch, right? That's right. It gives it a nice little bit of crunch and nuttiness. And then you actually drizzle with a little more oil and some more of that spice blend, uh, both cumin and paprika, which makes for a really beautiful presentation. So if you're bored with guacamole, you've gotten to that point in your life, you can try this Gazan style uh, from Yasmin Khan. It's really good. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks, Chris. To find the recipe for mashed avocados with sesame and chili, go to 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik and I discuss what to do when your favorite restaurant closes. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. 
They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Milk State Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for Sarah and I to answer your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? Hi, this is Donna. Hi, Donna. What can we help you with today? Um, well, when I go to the market, sometimes you see broccoli, rob, and then broccolini all together. So I thought, which one's which? which what's the difference? Or should I just try them all? Well, I would say of those three, okay, so broccoli, we all know what broccoli is. You know, eat your broccoli. Mm -hmm. Everybody does that. So that's pretty well known. Broccoli rob is, you know, an Italian vegetable or very popular in Italy and somewhat bitter compared to regular broccoli. I tend to blanch it before I saute it. Some people really Uh like that straight out bitter stuff, but not me so much. So I do blanch it. Before I saute it, I cut it into one-inch lengths or half-inch lengths. And then broccolini Mm -hmm. is, um, you know, not very bitter. It's these long, thin stalks and then little tiny florets at the top. And I'd say it's closer to broccoli than broccoli, Rob, in terms of flavor. Chris, what would you say? Yeah, and I would stir-frying is an excellent choice for broccoli or broccoli, Rob. Or, like the Italians, cook it for an hour with some pork. Yum. (laughs) Some liquid. Uh. Braise it forever. And serve it with beans or something. It looks so much prettier on the plate, too. It does. <laughs> no, but, I, you know, I've been doing a lot of steaming lately, and I do use a wok a lot, and I got one of these $8 steamer baskets. And you just throw it on top, put a little water in the wok. It comes up to boil in about a minute and a half. It's very quick because the wok heats yeah. up so quickly. And it's a big, big surface. It's like 12 inches. So you can put mm-hmm. a whole head of broccoli on there. Nice. You know, it steams in just a few minutes, so I do a lot of steaming that way, so you don't have to pull out a special steaming kit or something. Steaming, it probably stays greener and loses, more healthy, Yeah, too. yeah, loses less vitamins. Yeah, and, so. and for kids, uh, I just dress it with olive oil and salt, and it's simple and quite good, but, but stir-frying would be my also go-to choice. I like the blanching and then sautéing in olive oil with the hot pepper flakes and the garlic. That also works. Yeah. Oh, that sounds good, blanch. <laughs> Okay, those are a whole bunch of choices. and um, Thank you. That was very helpful. Okay, well, thanks, Donna. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. 
Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Chris from Vermont. Where in Vermont? Uh, Huntington. What can we do for you today? Well, I have a little orange tree in a pot. It might be a calamondin. It has fruits year-round. They are super sour, so you can't eat them plain, but they have so much flavor. I'm wondering what I might be able to do with them. Well, if you look at a lot of cultures, you sour orange. It's a common thing, for example, in a marinade when you're doing a pig roast. I used to do every year. We, <laughs> that's what you use. Uh-huh. So, so you look up any culture that has sour oranges as an ingredient, I think you could probably substitute them out. Okay. I think anywhere you'd use lemon or lime, you could use this orange. You could even make, say, you know, like a lemonade, but make it with the juice from this orange, and that would be delicious. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Since, you know, we're heading into summer. And then, um, of course, preserves and marmalades. You can't do it straight up in a tart. You'd have to candy them first. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, where you often pair fruit with meat, fatty meats like duck and um, pork, that would probably be a good combination, too. That's a lot of ideas. Thank you. So how big is this tree, and how did you get, where did this tree come from? I got it off the side of the road in suburban Boston, and it's a, it's a little bush, maybe, um, three feet across, about three feet high. It's in a big pot. And does it and look it like kumquats or something? Round. They're like the size of kumquats, like golf balls? Yes, exactly. A little bit smaller than golf balls, about the size of walnuts, but round. And they have a real soft, real sweet skin. Well, you could sugar and preserve the skin, like, you know, lemon peel. That would also be yeah. good, too. I was also just thinking they'd probably be nice as the acid in a vinaigrette. You know, a little shallots, a little mustard, and, of course. and salt and some of that. And I make homemade vinaigrette all the time. Yeah. Why don't you use the juice of this orange instead of well, that's a good idea. whatever else you're using, just to mix it sure. up. That'd be wonderful, like on scallops, you know, with shellfish. Sure, are on the greens that are going to be ready here in another month or so. That would be delicious. Yeah, <laughs> it depends how far north you are in Vermont. It could be another two months. Maybe not a month. Yeah. <laughs> well, the rule is the tomato plants do not go out until June 1st. No, at least. At least. Wow, yeah, that's I've rough. gotten caught with that that's a few rough. times. But at any rate, I think you're going to have yeah, a lot of fun cool. with this. Yeah. I think I am, too. Well, thanks for calling, Chris. Thanks for calling. Sure. It was really exciting to talk to you. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. Whether you're a beginner cook or a pro chef, Sarah and I are ready to answer your questions. Please call us at 855-426-9843. That is 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Janet England, and I'm from Brighton, Mass. Uh, nearby. How can, right nearby. How can we help you? Well, I have a question about breadcrumbs, which has stumped me for a long time. You know how there's so many recipes, like, you know, when you're cooking meatballs or meatloaf or so many things, it will say half a cup of breadcrumbs. And I always feel like, okay, do I get the canned stuff? Do I make them myself? Do you have any recommendations in terms of, like, depending on what, the food you're cooking, is if it's chicken or if it's fried chicken, fish, meatloaf, meatballs, like what the best choices are for that kind of thing? It depends how you're going to use them. If you're going to use them as an ingredient in a recipe with other things mixed in, yeah. panko would be my go-to because they're, oh. not, they're not seasoned. 
bread is cooked electrically, actually. If you've ever seen a video oh. on how they do it in Japan, it's pretty interesting. Tell us. Well, they have these giant ovens, and they actually cook huh. the bread with electricity. It's not heat. Interesting. You get this very distinctive texture, and mm-hmm. you also, they're not seasoned, which is great. But Chris, wait a second. If you were going to add it in a panade, like in meatloaf or in meatballs, where you want to sort of soften it with milk and have it give texture. I what, wouldn't use it for panade. That's what I mean. You'd use fresh breadcrumbs. I, I wouldn't use breadcrumbs. I'd just use two slices of bread, a tablespoon or two of milk, tear up the breadcrumbs, get rid of the crust, and mash it with a fork, and that would be oh. a panade for a meatballs or Got it. You don't need crumbs because it just will absorb the liquid. Yeah. I think my favorite way, though, if you're going to top something, like it's a kind of a Caesar salad situation where you want a lot of crunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I did take slices of bread like a baguette, cut them into pieces, put them in a skillet with a couple tablespoons of oil and some salt and saute it for mm-hmm. six or seven minutes. And you get okay. these phenomenal, crispy, large pieces of crispy breadcrumbs. And that's for ah. a situation, mostly for a salad or something where you're tossing sure. big pieces of bread. But otherwise, I'd use panko or, as Sarah said, Fresh slices of bread for a panade, but that's a very specific use. Do you so have another? For like breaded chicken, like um, like frying like fish or something like a panko. Is panko. That what you said? Yeah, because oh, okay, perfect. I don't think you really need to go to the trouble to make your own because once you break it down to food know. processor, you're going to have to toast it in the oven. Yeah, or, it's a whole process to make yeah. the toasted ones. Fresh ones are easy. Right. And I'm trying to think when you would use fresh ones. I have a recipe. Well, actually, it's my friend Jeannie Anderson's recipe for oven-fried chicken, which it isn't fried at all. Cut up chicken with the bone and the skin, and you dip it in garlic, melted garlic butter. and yeah, that, that good. And then you dip it in a mixture of three parts fresh breadcrumbs to one part grated Parmesan cheese. Mm-hmm. You coat it completely, mm. and then you just bake it. And you pour a little of the extra garlic butter mm-hmm. over it, melted. It's killer, frankly. I agree with Chris that panko or pretty fantastic. Although a lot of times panko benefits, if you want some toastiness, let's say you're going to add it to pasta. You want to saute it until it's golden and a little bit of olive oil, maybe throw in a little garlic. And that's a yummy addition to pasta. But I did want to say one thing. I don't think people know that if you have breadcrumbs, any kind that you've bought from the supermarket, they can become stale. That's good to know. So don't keep them for too long. Try to use them up. Yeah. Janet, thanks for calling, and that was a very good question. Yeah, that was really helpful. Thank you very much. Take care, Janet. Good to talk to you both. Yeah. Take okay. care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, let's find out what Adam Gopnik is thinking about today. Adam, how are you? I am well, Christopher. How are you today? I'm good, but I'm always in an anticipatory state when we chat. Well, here's what I've been thinking about the logic and ritual of closing of restaurants in New York City. As you probably know, one of the things that is most painful, striking, and permanent a feature of New York City life is that the restaurants we love most are the ones that close first. And I began to brood on our response to the loss in the closing of restaurants, because it seems to me significantly different from the classic stages of grief, as they've been so often described, were said to begin the stages of grief about the loss of a person with denial, including sometimes denial of our own potential loss. And it seemed to me that what happens most often when we hear that a restaurant we love is closing or has closed or is going to close shortly, we um, initially, our first response is dismissal. We try and sort it out by saying to ourselves, oh, well, 
you know, it was time. We list its flaws. We think about its faults. We say, oh, well, it was no longer cool, or the kind of cooking they were doing no longer suited the time. We try to immunize ourselves against our own feeling of loss by that act of dismissal. And then the second thing that seems to happen is, to me, not bargaining, as is often said when we talk about the stages of uh, larger griefs. It is recreation. I don't know if you've ever done that, Christopher, but I always find that when a place I love has just closed or is about to close, I'm, I'm inexplicably or perhaps all too explicably drawn to try to reproduce my favorite dishes from that place. Of course, that act always fails. We can never adequately approach an actual recreation of the food we had enjoyed in the place because, of course, as you know, what we had enjoyed was not or not alone the food, it was the place itself. So after denial of a kind, after dismissal, and then after the act of recreation, do you know what I think the third stage in our dealing with the closing of a favorite restaurant is? It would have been my first stage, which is I would transpose that love to a new restaurant. Ah, that's the last stage <laughs> in the my last sequence. That would have been my first. <laughs> <laughs> that's the difference, I think, between a New Englander and a New Yorker. The next stage for me is indignation, because that's when you get angry at the injustices and the um, absurdities of New York City real estate, particularly, about the way that just insidiously and uh, permanently everything we love is being uprooted and destroyed and being replaced by a bank building or another drugstore. And that sense of indignation fires us up. And we try to think, is there something to be done? And I mean that quite seriously. One of the movements, as you may know, that's been underway in New York on the whole quixotically and unsuccessfully for the past decade or so is commercial rent control, exactly to try and keep in place all of the small, beloved businesses of New York, of which restaurants are the most visible and in some respects, because of the social role they play, the most significant. Finally, in a New Yorker's sequence, comes replacement. <laughs> right. Comes replacement. You go out to seek a place that can give you some of the pleasure that the previous place had. But the truth is that that's never wholly successful, partly because what you loved about the old place, the place that's gone, was not just specific to a place. It was usually specific to a time. Restaurants, I think more than almost any other social institution I can think of, carry the thumbprint, if you like, the DNA of the time that they were born right through their entire lives. So we can never go home again, and we can never go back to that restaurant. And if we're forward-facing people, we try to replace it with a new vision, a new place, and therefore a new time. Because part of the pathos of the restaurant as a social institution, is exactly that every restaurant is always a pop-up. There are always wonderful social chapels, places where people come together for pleasure and community, but it's built into the nature of a restaurant that it must pass, and its passing, I suppose, is part of its pleasure. Sometimes a memory lives on in your memory better than it does in person. So, so maybe, maybe restaurants have a life cycle that should end at some point. I, that could be, and it's certainly true. I, will sh I share your sense that very often when we go back to the temples of cuisine that first sparked or kindled our love of dining out, we're sort of startled by how simple or outdated uh, the cooking might seem. I think that happens to all of us. Nonetheless, it, the problem in New York, at least, and this may not be as true elsewhere, is that the restaurant itself, the idea of dinner, the notion of a semi-private public place, that seems to be vanishing. What seems to be replacing all of those restaurants 
are not new restaurants that reflect a new time. No, what seems to be replacing them are quick hit places, you know, fast casual places, places where you go and there isn't even often a table. There's simply a counter and a place to grab food and run. I don't mind the replacement of one generation of restaurants by the next. I do mind the replacement of the restaurant as an institution with a place designed only for the narrow purposes of nosebag feeding. <laughs> Adam Gobnick, once again, in a, in a short phrase, you have gotten to the pith of the argument. <laughs> Thank you. Delighted to try, Christopher. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. You know, Adam talks about the closing of his favorite restaurants, which made me think about what makes a restaurant special. Restaurants are about the lives of the people who work within its walls. We drop in from time to time to continue the conversation. But the real beauty of these relationships is that we have the option of not returning. This makes every visit a conscious reaffirmation of our commitment. And when that relationship ends, as it always does, it's without notice and free of blame. Perhaps restaurants are indeed poetry, a handful of words that nurture something unexpected and short-lived. That's it for today. If you tuned in late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, take an online cooking class, and order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. We'll be back next week. Thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tubeup Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.